0: You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's wwwm So welcome, everybody. This is a Meditation and an Attachment. This is the Intermediate and Advanced class at uh, 7.35 p.m. on July 9th, 2020. And... Um, Nathan was just asking a question about whether he should retreat to the desert for for the coming up of retreat, which reminds me of a story that Shinzen used to tell about the first uh, year of practice in, uh, um, I think, uh, in Mumbai, uh, where at sitting at night, the noise of the rats running overhead was so loud uh, that he couldn't concentrate on his meditation practice partly because of the noise and partly because of the creepiness of uh, the Western relationship to rats but if you'd been to India you would know that uh, in the Hindu tradition rats are considered uh, sacred beings and so they're not killed there they're celebrated there much uh, I think that they have a relation to the uh, relationship to them like we have to squirrels and so you go to the park and they feed the rats rather than feeding the squirrels. And actually a third of the grain that they grow in India is eaten by the rats because they don't kill them. Um, and so I would say that if it's just the concern about the noise in, in uh, your apartment that you uh, begin to sit with the, the noise and the distraction um, because actually you want to be able to develop a practice that you can do In life, wherever you are. How's that for an answer? (laughs) On the other hand, I'm sure there's some five star hotel somewhere that needs to rent a room. (laughs) We are having a retreat coming up and i had a question about it the retreat is uh starting um a week from tomorrow and it, it's friday saturday sunday monday and tuesday and um the there's going to be a live yoga session in the morning from 7 till about eight thirty, and then nine there's a nine to ten is instructions for the day the retreat is limited to 20 people and so um i will do interviews with every uh, everybody at the retreat every other day. Um, there are going to be three Zoom rooms. One is a meditation space, one is the classroom space, and then one is the interview space. Um, so the meditation room will be open pretty much the entire time of the retreat. The classroom will be available when um, the the teaching is happening, and the interview space uh, you'll come into when, you're, when it's time for your interview. So I don't know. I think there's maybe 14 people have registered already for the retreat, so there's six spaces left. We're gonna we're gonna keep it at 20, uh, so that um, uh, that it can be productive. I I tend to do smaller retreats uh, with about 20 people anyway. And so in the instruction period in the Q and A, we want to have uh, enough. space for people to have the attention that they need um, in the afternoon from two to six there'll be a, a, a long sitting period it'll be broken up uh, hourly but it's it's basically available for that time and then after a, a dinner break at uh, 7 30 there'll be a q a Q&A period or um, a period for practicing ideal fever protocol and then um at 8 30 there'll be a a, a yin yoga session to wind down so in the morning there's energizing yoga to get you going and then in the evening there's a yin yoga to, to take you down so that you can sleep well any other questions about that the registration is on the website so metagroup.org where you found your way here good We're going to continue with the discussion about um, uh, Satipatthana Sutta. I like to um, read it and go into it more deeply. Um, Thus, I have heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living in the Kuru County at the town of. Guru's named Kama Sadama. There he addressed the monks, thus, monks, venerable sir, they replied, the blessed one said this, monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for the acquiring the true method for the realization of the nirvana, namely the four satipatthanas. So nirvana or nirvana is a, a word that It refers to enlightenment. Enlightenment um, is an interesting thing to consider because it means so many different things to different people. Um, When I first started meditation, uh, I went to Ordinary Dharma in Venice and took an intro to Vipassana class. And uh, uh, Ketriyana Reed went around the room and asked everybody to say why they had come to the class. And I said uh, that I had come because I wanted to be enlightened. And everyone in the class erupted in laughter, not of the encouraging kind, (laughs) but of the deriding kind, that anybody could want to be enlightened, that it was such a far-out goal that was completely unattainable. And um, and that was very disheartening because I thought, why would you practice meditation and put all this effort and resource into something if it didn't actually produce what it said it would at the end? Um, but what I had considered enlightenment to be was not actually what enlightenment was or even related to what enlightenment is, which is I thought that if I got enlightened, I would never have an any more problems, Um, and that actually isn't uh, what happens or what enlightenment is. You could say then that enlightenment is simply to see things the way that they are and to be able to be with things the way that they are without having to get away from them, Um, to understand the nature of your conditioning and how that conditioning forms the experience of self and world understand the the nature of the human condition and and what happens to all of us. So in the Satiputana Sutta, what the Buddha is saying is that if you follow this path, this path will lead you to enlightenment. And um, one of the things that I think is interesting about that is to begin to open to the idea of trying to understand what it is that uh, is meant by what enlightenment is. I think that we all probably have some conception of what that means. Um, And one of the reasons it's important to be able to understand what enlightenment is is that you need to be able to recognize in the people that are teaching you whether or not you think that they have those understandings or not. And if you don't know what it is that uh, you're supposed to be looking for, it makes it harder to see uh, in, in, in the people that are there teaching you. You don't necessarily need at the beginning of practice, or even in the middle of practice, somebody who's uh, enlightened, but you do need somebody who's ahead of you on the path. And so it's also important to know in some sense what the path is. Uh, One of the reasons I like Dharma maps and the Satipatthana is certainly one of them is because it lays out the path in front of you so that you can make sense of how to organize your practice definition, what are the four, so satipatthana is a word that is often translated um, as the four foundations uh, of mindfulness, Um, but I I like a more literal translation which is pastures, the four pastures of inquiry, what to pay attention to in your meditation. What are the four? Here, monks, in regard to the body, a monk abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feelings, he abides contemplating feelings, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the mind, he contemplates the mind, diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, Free from desires and discontent in regard to the world, in regard to Dhamma as the abides, contemplating Dhamma diligent, clearly known, mindful, free from desires and disconnect, uh, discontent in the world. And so contemplating is the, this practice of meditation, paying attention. These four experiences that make up the meditative experience, um, <clears throat> Diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, and free from desires and discontent in the world. So diligent uh, refers to energy. Uh, It's a middle path, so uh, not too much energy so the mind is restless and agitated, not too little energy so that the mind is sleepy or tired. Clearly knowing is knowing where your attention is, and then soaking into the sensing experience of it. So it's both the knowing of it and the experience of it. And this is related to the six sense gates in Buddhism, uh, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and mind. Uh, One of the four satipatthanas is the mind. So uh, we do explore that specifically, but Um, that's a different mind than what we mean by mind as a sensing experience. You can track mind as a sensing experience by noticing that your attention flows from object to object, paying attention to that. And then knowing that it collects each of these mind moments into a string of mind moments that is then converted into conceptual reality. So the insight here really is that you don't create a representation of the world that's accurate to the world. You create a representation of the world that's based on your conditioned preferences uh, and things that you value, which you select out of the whole range of sensing experience. And from that selective focus, you create the world, you create the experience of self. And because in each moment, you're selecting a different group of sensing uh, or mind moments. You, you have a great latitude in terms of how you create the experience of self and world. Mindful means that you are in the awareness of the present moment and free from desires and discontents in regards to the world means that you are concentrated enough. So in the beginning, meditation would be described as a contemplation where you have good energy, you clearly know what's happening, you're embedded in the experience of the present moment, and you're concentrated well enough not to get pulled up into the content of the sensing experiences. We then contemplate these four different groups, the body, um, feeling tone, mind, and also the Dhammas, the different ways of inquiry. So, and we begin to stack them. What is the experience of being in the body? So he continues, and now monks, and how monks, especially in regard to the body, abide contemplating the body. Here, gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree. Or to an empty hut, he sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and established mindfulness in front of him. Mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he knows I breathe out short. He trains thus. I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body he trains. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body he trains thus. I shall breathe in, calming the bodily formation he trains thus. I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formations. Just as a skilled turner or his apprentice, when making a long turn knows, I make a long turn. Or when making a short turn knows, I make a short turn. And so breathing in long, he knows, he breathes in long. Here, what we're doing is moving into this observing function of simply being with the experiences as they come and go. Moving out of identification with the person or the the sense of self experiencing this and moving into awareness. So making a distinction between consciousness and awareness. We have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it when when they have contact, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which is evaluated for feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then compared to the perceptual database. And if there's close enough match to the perceptual uh, database, to the unfixated sensing experience, then it's converted into Conceptual reality, that is to uh, say, one of the words that uh, is often translated in English is attached. The meaning is attached to the sensing experience and it becomes the solid representation of conceptual reality, becomes fixated. Dan Brown says, uh, it grabs your attention and it becomes this solid experience based on the database or based on your capacity to imagine and part of that process of perception is what to do in response to what's just happened, how you've just perceived what's happened. Um, There was a a famous police case um, where uh, a number of officers were in pursuit of uh, a, uh, a uh, armed uh, criminal, let's say, and um, one of the police officers was disciplined and fired from the police force because uh, another officer was shot by the uh, running criminal and fell by the side. Uh, of a wall as he was attempting to climb over it and the, the the second officer came behind him jumped over the wall and continued to pursue the uh, criminal without providing aid to the officer who was shot. The police officer who was fired said that he didn't see the wounded police officer laying on the ground and that that's why he didn't render aid that had he seen him, he would have rendered aid. This is this selective attention function of of the human experience. Um, They uh, did a series of studies, which was the origin of this selective focus uh, psychology and found that it's very possible to not see things that are in your immediate vicinity because you don't focus on them. And that your focus really is attending on what, what it is that has value to you. Another one of those statistics that I find so interesting is uh, motorcycles with one headlights are nine times more likely to be run off the road than motorcycles with two headlights. And the most common response to a motorist who runs a motorcycle off the road is, they weren't there and this is most common on commuter routes where the person drives back and forth on the same route uh, over and over again. Because it turns out that generating an image of what's actually happening in the present moment is very calorie intensive, and if the mind can get away with using old imagery, it will, because it's less calorie intensive. An example in my own life was I I had uh, a weekly therapy session the a therapist, and I went into the office, and I sat down, and I looked. There was a new rug there, and I said, you got a new rug. And he said, yes, I got a new rug six months ago. You've been here at least 20 times since I got it. <laughs> um, so what I'm trying to get at here is the idea that we really do make it up, and we... What we want to begin to do is train the mind to be mindful and to generate in each moment uh, a a new image that's associated, a new sensory experience that's associated with the present moment. And so, this is that knowing piece knowing what's happening, uh, soaking into the sensing experience, and then understanding how that's translated into. conceptual reality in real time, in every moment, so that you don't get pulled into the representations of the mind and lose present moment awareness. This is the refrain. In this way, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body internally, he abides contemplating the body externally, he abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, he he abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, or he abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindful that there is a body is established him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how, in regard to the body, he abides the body. So we we begin to look at this as an additional three areas of contemplation. He abides, which means that you stay continuously in awareness, contemplating the body internally. So what is the internal representation? If you're trained in Shinzen's techniques, this would be focus in internal visual thinking, internal auditory thinking, and the emotional content in the body and he abides contemplating um, the body externally, and that would be focus out, hear out, see out, and the felt sense of the body in the world, or he abides contemplating both internally and externally. Um, If we talk about this at at a bigger level, Internally is the sense of self, and externally is the sense of other people. And to watch internal and external is to watch the interactivity between these. I talk about often a process of spiritual development, which was a list developed by Ken Wilbur and Dan Brown uh, um, 30 years ago or so. But firstly, that you recognize that you have a mind state and other people have a mind state. And that you recognize that your mindset has an effect on the other person and their mindset has an effect on you and that there's this constant interaction which you can track in real time and not get pulled into the content of it so that you simply become reactive rather than being present for how you're making this happen. Is that making sense? When you begin to do this in the sensing experiences, what you'll notice is that each sense gate can cause a reaction in another sense gate, and there's this almost popcorn explosion of sensing experiences that are triggered by other sensing experiences, and you're constantly in this flow of sensing activations, which you can be present for and track in real time, and not get pulled into the content of, and lose the interactivity. This is especially important in human relationships because the way that somebody is, uh, you take in, uh, in in many ways, uh, largely unconsciously and then react to it. And it's important to be able to track what's happening, again, based on what it means to you and not what's actually happening, so that you can reside in this place of openness to the experience. So, uh, mindfulness of inside, mindfulness outside, mindfulness of inside and outside, then the mindfulness of arising, mindfulness of passing, mindfulness of arising and passing. One of the great uh, delusions in Buddhist thinking is the idea that things are permanent and ongoing, uh, uh, unchanging or constant. And this really comes from the mind being drawn to arising, to arising, to arising, to arising, and not really paying attention to the passing away of things. So one of the the, uh, practices in meditation is to note the passing away of each arising event and then being present for the the whole wave of arising and passing. We make conceptual reality out of a series of arisings and passings in all of the different sense gates woven together in this conceptual reality, which at times can appear quite solid and quite real, particularly if we get pulled into the content, which can be very sticky and lose track of the constant arising and passing nature of everything. Um, Mindfulness, that there is a body, is established in to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So we need to be able to contact at a, a resolution that's fine enough that we really have a sense of what go, what's going on, but we don't, don't need, nor is it reasonable or practical, to track every event. The mind is going to be drawn naturally to the things that are already conditioned to be high value and you're going to select and create conceptual reality out of that that list of high value targets. Um, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is um, referring to equanimity. One of the, the Dhammas is the understanding that equanimity is the opposite of craving, aversion, and unconsciousness. So craving for something different than what is aversion to what is, and unconsciousness not being engaged enough in what's happening that you get pulled into the content of thinking or spaced out. That you're equanimous with the experience of the present moment, that you're fully present for it as it arises and passes, and that you're able to see clearly the components that are then um, brought together to create the experience of conceptual reality, and that you can come and go from that as you would like, might be another definition of what enlightenment is. In Theravada Buddhism, which is what this text is from, uh, cessation or nerota is is one of the, the... central teaching features. And what that means is that uh, uh, narota means uh, the arising and passing of uh, awareness. Even awareness is impermanent in that sense, which you probably know um, because awareness During sleep, if you're in a deep sleep state, shuts off and you don't know during that period of sleep what's happening. Not that the body isn't alive and the body isn't functioning and the environment isn't continuous, It's simply that awareness is not present and so you don't know what's happening. But that's very limited, maybe an hour or so each night when you're in REM sleep, awareness is there. If you're aware of dreaming or any of those kinds of twilight states, hypnagogic states, that's because awareness is present. The, the uh, Satipatthana Sutta then continues to note different aspects of the body to pay attention to. So one aspect is postures, Again, monks, when walking, he knows I am walking. And standing, he knows I am standing. When sitting, he knows I am sitting. When lying down, he knows I am lying down. This is a reference to the four postures that you can use uh, in your formal meditation practice. The lying down posture is on the side, the legs on top of each other, so that you have to be mindful that mindful in order to maintain your balance, if you lose mindfulness, you have a tendency to fall over. Um, We often see people in a lying down posture where they're lying on their back, but this is not, (laughs) that's it. (laughs) Uh, Jacqueline is currently demonstrating the lying down posture. Sitting, you know, uh, back erect, hips above the knees. Uh, If you have a good back, you can sit unsupported. That reinforces uh, present moment awareness. Walking, uh, depending. In a meta style or a loving-kindness style walking, it's just a a casual strolling and in a a, a more concentration-oriented practice. It's very slow moving. That, again, engages the need to be able to balance. So you have to be mindful, standing, The refrain repeats, in this way, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body internally, externally, both internally and externally, etc. And then we, we have activities, again monks, when moving forward and returning, he acts clearly knowing, when looking ahead uh, and looking away, he acts clearly knowing, when flexing and extending his limbs, he acts clearly knowing, when wearing his robe and carrying his outer robe and bowl, he acts clearly knowing, when eating, drinking, consuming food, Uh, tasting he acts clearly knowing, when defecating and urinating he acts clearly knowing, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent, he clearly knows. He acts clearly knowing. What this is saying is that there is the period of formal practice where we learn to do these techniques, but that meditation is meant to be an activity that's engaged at all times in every activity. Uh, the this presence of these conditions of contemplation, energy, uh, clearly knowing, mindfulness, concentration, paying attention in at every moment. What I find uh, is useful uh, in training the mind to do this is to run a technique in the background all day long in whatever activity that you're engaged in until you train the mind so well that it just does it automatically on its own and you don't have to effort. So in the beginning, there's a lot of effort into training the mind to be able to do it. But once you've done that training, the mind is able to handle it on its own. And then again, the refrain, refrain, and then uh, the anatomical parts. Again, monks, he reviews the same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, closed by skin, as full of many kinds of impurity thus in this body. There are head hairs and body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, uh, this entry, uh, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittles, not oil of joints and urine. Sometimes um, I think it's fun to do a guided meditation where each of these is individually examined to see if we can detect them in the body. Um, one of the things about uh, contemplating the body in this way, it's much like contemplating um, corpses or death, is that you, you come into a sense that this body, this human condition is limited and will not last. All things arise in pass, including this body, which will grow old, get sick and die. And so you tie into really examining the elements of the body individually so that you can become less identified with the body, less attached to the body, less protective of it in the sense that uh, it needs to be defended. Um, The refrain again, and then elements, the four elements. One of the things about being in the West and being so science oriented is that the discussion of the, the energies of fire and air, water and earth um, don't, uh, for me anyway, resonate as much. When we were in Myanmar, the Sayadaw always had us meditate on the four energies and he would describe them. But still having a sharp Western mind and preferring uh, the, the nature of science I would prefer talking about the neuroscience of all of this. And then again, the refrain, and then meditating on corpses in decay, again monks, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in the charnel ground, one, two or three days dead, bloated, livid, oozing, matter. Devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, and various kinds of worms, a skeleton with flesh and blood, held together with sinews, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood, held together with sinews, a skeleton without flesh and blood, held together with sinews, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, bones bleached white, the color of shells, bones heaped up, more than a year old bones, rotten and crumbling to dust, He compares the same body with us, this body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And that can be a productive meditation. Um, when I was working with uh, Dan Brown um, on the, the pith instructions for dochin, which is a Tibetan practice, one of the practices is to go into a remote spot and sit under a tree and contemplate for a full day all the different ways that the body that you're currently inhabiting could die until you are shaking with fear at the thought that the body you are in would not last, Um, which seems uh, innocent enough. But by the end of the day, it was terrifying to imagine all of the different ways that the body could just cease to exist. And really one of the things that this is emphasizing in the practice is that there's no later. We need to be engaged in the moment. Um, I think it uh, heightens this. um, In one direction, there's nihilism, where nothing lasts, or nothing really matters. There's no point in really engaging anything. And in the other direction is this full engagement because nothing lasts. And so in each moment, you may think that you can preserve yourself from the suffering uh, by not engaging, but actually, you lose it either way. And in the, in the choice of not engaging, you don't get the richness of the experience itself. And so you go into each of these experiences, each of these moments, knowing that it's not going to last, not with the delusion that you can make it last somehow. And that that richness is still there and still something that can uh, provide meaning this human condition. And in this regard, he abides contemplating the body internally, externally, both internally and externally, he abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body. So, if you remember in the original description or in, uh, in the, the definition before Satipatthana, the second one is feelings or feeling tone. Vedna is the Pali word for that. And tonight, the meditation that I'm I, I going to guide is going to be around feeling tones. Um, and how monks, does he in regard to feeling abide contemplating feeling? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, he knows I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, he knows I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neutral feeling, he knows I feel a neutral feeling. When feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, he knows I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. When feeling a world unworldly pleasant feeling, he knows I feel an unworldly. Pleasant feeling when feeling a worldly unpleasant feeling. He knows I feel a worldly unpleasant feeling when feeling an uh, unworldly pleasant feeling. He knows I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling when feeling a worldly neutral feeling. He knows I feel a worldly neutral feeling when feeling an unworldly neutral feeling. He knows I feel an unworldly feeling neutral feeling. Um, so, there's two things here. One is the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspect of things, and the second is the discernment between a worldly thing and an unworldly thing. The unworldly things re- refers to mind's uh, refers to uh, products that are related to the meditation, seeing clearly into the nature of. Uh, the world, and worldly uh, really refers to the nature of the body and an ordinary uh, experience. So in the next class, um, I'm going to go more deeply into the discussion of worldly and unworldly, um, and today we're going to do the just to begin to sensitize to the nature of this pleasant unpleasant or neutral. I prefer to translate that as urgent, needs, urgent attention, doesn't really matter, and uh, pleasant if there's time. And this corresponds to the neuroscience research on the ordering of processing of information and also what is allowed into consciousness. Um, The body-mind itself has the capacity to gather 11 million discrete bits of information per second and consciousness has the capacity to um, uh, understand or process 16 bits one six so um, this process of vedna is the process of what gets and what gets chosen to be one of the 16 bits from the 11 million bits. And there's also an ordering to this and there's also an intensity to it. Um, And this is pretty good science, it's been well replicated by a number of uh, facilities. Urgent information requires three-eighths of a second to process and needs to be of half the intensity that pleasant information means. Pleasant information requires a half a second and twice the intensity in order for it to meet the threshold to enter into consciousness. And urgent material supersedes everything in the queue. So understand that this narrowing of 11 million bits into 16 bits before it enters into consciousness is uh, organized around this quality of Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Unpleasant, having priority over everything else. The vast majority of neutral experience never really entering into consciousness. And pleasant if there's time. So it's easy to get into a very negative jag where everything you seem to be experiencing consciously is negative because of that bias toward processing negative things, but also because of the perceptual database that Uh, creates the value and meaning of the sensing experience, not necessarily the the experience itself. And so in today's meditation, we're going to use a see, hear, feel technique with a focus in, focus out. Um, So this sensitive to the internal and external and the internal and external, but we're going to add a second level of inquiry as to whether the experience itself is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is still in the sensing side and in the absolute reality side, not the conceptual reality. When we begin to explore mind, um, the mind aspect is conceptual reality, but this is still related to the sensing experience. Is the sensing experience itself pleasant to experience, unpleasant to experience, or neutral? Uh, Understanding that almost everything will be in. Uh, the uh, unpleasant or pleasant categories because neutral material competes so poorly with the ordering of that. But we're just talking about the quality of the sensing experience itself, not about what you've made it into. It's not whether you like something or don't like something based on what you've made it into. It's whether the sensing experience itself is pleasant unpleasant or neutral to experience. There is an interplay between content and sensing. For instance, if you track internal visual thinking, the sensing experience itself is almost always neutral unless there's a very strong intensity of that. Um, more often than not, external sight space where the light gets very bright can have an unpleasant quality to it, but that also tends to be uh, pretty neutral. Um, uh, and so there is this pulling apart of content from sensing experience itself, and there is an interaction between them. Is that all making sense in terms of what we're going to explore? Any questions before we begin? All right, let us begin. So how did that go? I think that you want to uh, develop the skill set so that you can be in, in the complete experience of things but that often in the beginning, it's useful to train each aspect of it so that you have a, a real uh, spaciousness and clarity around it. Um, ultimately, with this kind of noting, I would be, I mean, the end of this direction of practice would be quadruple noting every sensing experience that comes up, the fourth note being one aspect of the dhammas or dharmas uh, that you're investigating in each of those moments. Um, but here we're trying to make a discernment between the purely sensing experience and then uh, that's the absolute reality and then the conceptual reality that comes after that. Now, mind you, of course, we're in consciousness, so everything's already been made into conceptual reality, so in some sense we're retro-engineering our understanding of it. Um, if we were in purely sensing, there would be uh, no uh, self there to to make these discernments. Is that making sense <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's the clinging or it's the loss of equanimity, the desire, for things not to be the way that they are, that is the root of suffering. Um, So, and how do you balance that? Uh, Indifference, of course, is not equanimity. Um, How do you fully engage and take everything from the experience that you can get from it? And then as the experience ends, not cling to it, so there's no suffering. You have the richness of having had the experience but you don't Cling to its passing away. And then, if something unpleasant arises, you have the complete experience of that without resisting its arising. Because it's in the resisting of either the passing away or the arising that the, the suffering happens, or you simply find that the experience is so ordinary that it's hard to engage at all. And in fact, that may be the largest activity. We we are un, unentertained or un interested in the ordinariness of things, and so we don't pay attention to them. We get caught up in whatever uh, mental process of entertainment that we can uh, generate in order to distract ourselves from the ordinariness of things. And so this is really about coming into the experience of the present moment and, and being able to take all of it in and then let it all end moment by moment. Is that making sense? <laughs> yeah, You've closed the border, so you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> the entrance to the path is to make a decision to not harm. So I, I One way I like to describe it is you make a decision to be a good person and you decide to live in an ethical way. Um, so then when you experience people who have not made that decision and do not live in an ethical way, how do you relate to them? And this is a kind of flow of energy, time, energy and resources in, flowing more energy into people that have made the decision to be a good person and to live in an ethical way and flowing less energy into people that haven't. Um, And then um, acting in a way that's in in concert with your ethical stance in the world. That's what I would say. Um, I don't Um, I prefer humor to anger in terms of addressing these things, and so that's kind of how I I like to be with it. But um, I do make a stance between people who are are living ethically and people who are not living ethically. Now, obviously, that's based on my view of what that that stance is, but non-harming is really the basis of it. Um, uh, if you look at cultures where wearing masks is ordinary because they have this idea of not harming and you wear a mask so that uh, if you do have a cold you don't give it to anyone else as a, a gesture of not harming you you see a, a a better outcome than in places like here where we don't do that So observing and being present for it, not allowing the mind to uh, drift into anger and self-consume itself, and then uh, understand clearly what your ethical stance is and make an ethical stance in the world uh, as a reflection of your response to the world. That would be how I would suggest you do it. Okay, <laughs> I will uh, uh, talk about that. Um, in in for lay people, the the basic uh, Buddhist ethical stance is the five precepts. Uh, the precept of uh, I like the way that not Th- 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 Th Th Han describes this as a practice. So, undertaking the practice not to cause harm through killing. Um, uh, sentient beings. And so we have uh, the care for each other, but also the care of uh, animals to consider. Uh, to undertake the practice not to, to, to uh, cause harm through taking what is not freely offered. So stealing, not taking what is not offered. Undertake the practice of not causing harm through your sexual expression Undertaking uh, the practice of not causing harm through speech. And then the last one is uh, not take uh, make, undertaking a practice not to cause harm through the imbibing of substances that lead to heedlessness. In the original uh, Pali text, of course, uh, they describe three different alcoholic beverages uh, that were very common at the time, 2,600 years ago, um, n- none of which I've ever imbibed, but certainly many other things <laughs> along the way. Uh, so uh, taking care there. In um, um, Myanmar on treats, you take uh, nine precepts, not to uh, The sixth is not to wear body adornments or perfume. The seventh is not to dance or listen to music. The eighth is to not to sleep on a high bed that would condone a, a, a special position uh, societally. And the ninth is to um, uh, offer metta to every uh, person that you encounter. I like to dance. Um, everybody is okay. <laughs> Any other comments about the practice that we did? We're a little over in time, but I think it's okay. It's okay with me. Uh-huh. Right, Right. Good. So um, there might be some discernment here between the third foundation, which is whether you like something or not, and the second one, which is the feeling quality of the sensing experience itself. Most of the time, the the, uh, the second foundation is very stable in terms of the the quality of the experience of it. And the third foundation is very changeable. Um, one of the things that intensifies um, suffering is resistance. And not wanting what is amplifies the distress, or not wanting something to end amplifies the distress of the ending. And so you can watch that quality of, of, of craving aversion. but then the sensing experience is is fairly stable. And that's one of the ways to help discern the difference between the two. Good. Someone else? All right, everybody, thank you so much. Let me do my quick announcements. Um, not uh, tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, um, we're going to start a retreat, which is five days. If five days seems like too much, uh, people who are registered for the Dharma Maps class can attend the Saturday as a, a day long. So it would be all day and in, into the evening uh, if you register for that, and then you can continue on that. So if, if the idea of a five-day retreat is too much and you'd like to have um, just one day to see what it's like, um, then maybe register for the Dharma class. The Tuesday night class is, uh, is coming to the end of the meta training and we'll be going into the basic Vipassana training in a couple of weeks. Uh, this class, I'm going to continue and go through the four uh, uh, pastors, uh, and then I'm going to talk uh, more uh, in, intensely about the ideal parent figure protocol had some requests to, to talk about why you would want to do that and how it can be helpful uh, to practice. Um, and I think that that's pretty much all that, that's coming up now. Um, I offer the class on a Donna basis. Dona is the word for generosity. So I offer the teachings freely, and anybody can attend to that. We do hope that people will make donations to support Metagroup and also support myself so that we can continue the teachings Um, there is um, a link on the website uh, that's at the end of the class description for this that will take you to the place to donate. And the last thing I should say is that if you want to uh, uh, have a regular practice with guided meditation, I do a live uh, conference called Monday through Friday mornings at 7.30 Pacific time, and you can get uh, 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 to that through our Patreon site. We have a Patreon uh, website where all of the morning meditations are then cataloged and you can uh, listen to them at any time during the day and, and any announcements for the morning meditation community are there. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.